Hi everyone and welcome to the Genomics Lab podcast, the podcast about current research in the field of genomics. We are your hosts, Eleanor Watson and Olivia Grant, two PhD students in the genomics group at the University of Essex. Join us as we speak to researchers in the field about their current research and their journey into genomics. Okay, how on earth are we on episode eight already, Liv? I know, literally, what the hell? um, No offence to any of our other guests so far, but I think this is the one that I'm most excited about. (laughs) Ellie, you're biased because it's like your field, so. It is my field. None of the other guests would take offence because this is Ellie's field, so. Yeah, don't take offence. I've loved having everyone on. It's like Alex's. I loved Alex's because we were talking about about your DNA methylation with so I was like yes I'm so excited (laughs) but finally today we're going right up my right up my street of uh human reproduction um so yeah no it's really exciting today isn't it um how's your week been Liv uh my week has been a standard week pretty boring making some plots sitting at my desk um lots of meetings this week we've been busy this week we have been busy we've had a lot of meetings but we don't have our usual meeting today that we would normally have we don't have our normal seminar do we so I feel like we said that last week didn't we we were like we were yeah. just talking about like how we had so many meetings and we're yeah. just saying again do we just sound like a broken record <laughs> we do sound like a broken record sorry everyone we're very boring <laughs> and all we do is go to meetings <laughs> I'm going to meetings. I did actually go out for a nice walk today, which I don't normally do. In, do you know what? When I hear everyone like, "Oh, go for a walk in the day," blah blah blah. Like this. Okay, I understand there's always time, but how do people find the time? I know. I my meetings are literally like in the middle of the day, so it's like, well, I'm not going to start working at nine and then eleven, then go for a walk. So no, I know. Do I fit in the walk. I know, and I feel like if I go after the work day, I'm happy to go for just like a little twenty minute walk. But if I go out during the work day and it's nice weather like I'll stay out for a couple of hours easily yeah, easily yeah. like stay out for a couple of hours and then I get home and I'm like oh well end of the day yeah exactly you end up working all evening to make up yeah that's the worst I so, so do you know what when we first started working from home I mean you know like I literally oh. worked all night you were Friday, crazy Friday nights do you know what my favorite thing to do on Friday nights was was to work until about I would get a glass of wine at about 8 p.m and I would work until 2 a.m no and I loved absolute it absolute weirdo oh, yeah like looking back why was I doing that why did you do that I don't know at the time I really loved it and like they were the most productive <laughs> four hours of my life but yeah um, that is not four hours is it? that's six, that's six hours what are you talking about Liv doesn't have her maths GCSE like what is for anyone that didn't know what I'm to me <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, um, now I just can't say, like, that's the thing, going for a walk now, like when yeah. I've finished, it's dark and it's yeah. just the same. No. Like, it's just not the same. Oh, it's not the I same have gone a couple, Yeah, me and Grace have gone a couple of times, taking Ginny with us, the dog. Ginny <laughs> the dog, yeah. who will become a regular feature on this podcast, I'm regular, sure. She likes regular, to interrupt every now yeah. and then. That's a regular topic of discussion. If you ever hear slobbering or some weird noises in the back, it's probably Ginny. It's the dog. <laughs> Not me, I promise. <laughs> she says that. It could well be her. <laughs> but yeah, no, so I'm I'm just <clears throat> I really enjoyed my walk today and I need to find 
I mean I have the time I just need to actively go out and have a walk so like that's yeah. my new week's resolution so check in with me next week if I've been on walks <laughs> you can start it for Lent instead of giving up you can start or I can you give up it. at my desk in my life give up sis- give up not going on walks yeah absolutely <laughs> anyway so right so today's episode uh, we're literally so excited we are very excited and very uh very privileged as well today yeah absolutely we're really grateful so um our guest this week was professor darren griffin from the university of kent um, who happens to be well he's got many many accreditations He is the director for the Centre for Interdisciplinary Studies of Reproduction at the University of Kent, where he's also Professor of Genetics. And as well as that, he's the president of the International Chromosome and Genome Society. Um, He's in a whole load of other societies. You really need to go look him up and see all of the things that he does. (laughs) Made a documentary. He's got a new book in the pipeline, a new documentary in the pipeline. (laughs) Um, so super exciting feeling super honored and excited definitely so without further ado shall we say hello to Darren absolutely let's get into it (laughs) we are absolutely honored today to be um, introducing professor Darren Griffin um, from the University of Kent, who we've obviously already given a little bit of a background on. Um, We like to sort of let our guests introduce themselves a little bit. So um, Darren, if you could just start, maybe just introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, all of that good stuff. Hi, well, it's lovely to be with you. Uh, My name is Darren. I'm from Leeds originally. Uh, I did my first degree in Manchester. My PhD at University College London, and then I followed my dream to go and work in America for a couple of years, worked in Cleveland, Ohio. Then off to Cambridge, my first academic appointment was at Brunel University. And since 2004, I've been at the University of Kent and professor since 2007. Does that help you? That does. It seems like Kent's very lucky to have you based on, you could have settled anywhere. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. How was um? So, what did you do in America? Oh, that's really interesting because I, I'm sort of like debating perhaps going to um, America or going abroad to do like a postdoc or something. So, how was that for you? I really enjoyed it. It's incredibly challenging, even though you think of you know American culture and UK culture as being quite similar to one another. Um, being slightly off in just about everything, you know, the, the choice of shaving foam, for instance, or. <laughs> You know, the, the the right the 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 you know the, the the best quality ham or bacon or whatever something like that every little thing you've got to just just guess yourself a little bit more um, <laughs> so when you come back after a couple of years you think my goodness that was a really really valuable experience I've grown up as a as a person and a scientist when you're there you do have <laughs> highs and lows I met some fantastic people I found out you know how the Americans do things uh, in a science context text um, and that was fantastic it was an amazing uh, department I was in and people said to me um, Cleveland Ohio is not a great city to be in I found the opposite it was um, it was a city that was just um, uh, turning the corner after a, a recession it was on the up 
Um, it was uh, suddenly the football team, the Browns started doing well. <laughs> the, the baseball team, the Indians started doing even better. Um, so it was just a great time to be there. And yeah. um, I just had the, the best of times and met some incredibly good friends. Oh, that's really great. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of interested, at what point in your very diverse life did you actually become interested in science? Well, um, it was relatively late in school, actually. My, my, my passion academically up until, I guess, um, early high school was history. So right, okay. um, in, in a different life, I may have ended up as an academic historian. Uh, <laughs> so I, I love sort of memorizing dates and learning about kings and queens and whatever else. Um, yeah. It's because I didn't really enjoy modern history quite the same, the, the world wars, um, as much as the, the pageantry of the kings and queens. Yeah. And I think at the time also, um, uh, early in my high school, we had a, a series of, um, of supply teachers, student teachers, some mm -hmm. of whom were reasonably good and some of them were, weren't all that great. And I think that the lack of consistency and the fact that I had a, a very good science teacher completely turned me over yeah. to um to science and um genetics was always one of those things i i particularly liked definitely it's amazing the the influence that a inspiring teacher can actually have Absolutely. on you isn't it mm. i bet you're good on a quiz team though with all that <laughs> you know there are some times when I, I really enjoy quizzes and you know you, you have a, a purple patch and it goes well and there are days when it's just nothing is going to work uh, for you so uh, it's a little bit I think if the if the quiz master is of a similar mind to yourself yep. so um, odd things I can remember uh, dates and quick kings and queens um, song lyrics is another thing that, that always yeah. comes to me. Um, but I, I get terribly nervous with science questions in case I get them wrong. Yeah, I, yeah. we feel, don't we, Liv? Yeah, so true. It's when someone in your family asks you a really basic science question and you just start thinking, what even is DNA? Like, you just really start overthinking everything. And then you're just like, I don't know the answer to that. And they say, but you're studying science. You're doing a PhD in science. How can you not know the answer to this? And I'm like, I just panic. And then I don't answer pressure. <laughs> So yeah, I could definitely relate to that. So what was your undergrad degree? What did you do your undergraduate degree in? And did you do a, a master's as well? Uh, no, so I did uh, an undergrad in genetics and cell biology. So as I started university, I didn't know what I wanted to do, except that it would be something biological. So I took biology. Um, yeah. After the first year, I decided that um, it was the genetics and the cell biology that interested me most. So I, I changed degrees. Um, the, okay. the first year was common um, to the biology and the genetics and cell biology anyway, so um, that that made no difference. I didn't need to. Uh, um, I, I, it was only a change in title. Uh, I um, got really interested in cytogenetics, study of chromosomes, in the final year, because um, rather than doing my final year project in the department. I ended up doing it at a cancer institute down the road uh, in Manchester, uh, attached to the Christie Hospital. Um, okay. So working in a, in a real work environment, in a real lab, was really, really suited me. Uh, I didn't do a master's, um, but on the basis of knowing quite a lot about chromosomes, then um, uh, I applied only for PhDs that were in that area. And there was one going at UCL that uh, I particularly fancied and, and got. So on to sort of the fun stuff, the science. So you, you mentioned um, this word cytogenetics. Could you explain a little bit what is cytogenetics? Absolutely. So um, if you think that all living things have DNA, 
um, unless you count some viruses. Uh, are viruses living things we don't know? But our favorite coronavirus at the moment uh, has RNA. But those exceptions aside, DNA is the mark of a living thing. And the vast majority of organisms just have a simple loop of DNA. So all, uh, all uh, bacteria, for instance, archaea, whatever. When you start thinking about complex organisms like fungi, plants and animals, then they have a lot more DNA per cell. So in order to be able to package that DNA up in order that the cell can divide, it can't just undergo DNA replication, hey presto, two daughter cells. It's got to be a lot more complex than that. So think about when you move house um, or move flats when you're a student, um, you can throw a few things in a bag and away you go, you're into the next flat. When someone like me um, moves house, then you've got to pack everything in boxes, uh, all the furniture, whatever, label all those boxes and then unpack them in a, a reverse order. So the complex cells, like from animals, plants and fungi, that's what they do. They package up the DNA in exactly the same way each time so that you can undergo uh, division. Now that packaging, what it involves is essentially, um, if you think about an old fashioned telephone wire and imagine that I'm, I'm holding it out and then I, I let it go and it coils. So when it coils, it becomes shorter and faster. And then imagine I'm gonna wrap it around my finger so it becomes shorter and fatter again. So this coiled coil of DNA and all the associated proteins are, is a chromosome, right? And cytogenetics is the study of chromosomes. So, um, and then the point is that in every cell of our body, then uh, the, um, the organization of that coiling up is exactly the same. So for instance, I know for a fact that um, uh, when we look at all my chromosomes, they look pretty much the same, but I've got two very unalike ones, one called an X, which is reasonable size, and one called a Y, which is tiny. Whereas I'm 99% sure that if we took a look at your carrier type, you two <laughs> would have two X chromosomes. Uh, Hopefully. That's an example. Exactly, yes. Fab. So one of, the, uh, one of your strings to your bow is that you were involved in the first successful cytogenetic pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, <laughs> to give it its full title. Well done. <laughs> so can you... Can you tell us kind of what this uh, cytogenetic pre-implantation genetic diagnosis means? Yeah, absolutely. So, so essentially um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is quite simply diagnosing genetic disease in IVF embryos, okay? And the reason it exists is if people are at risk of transmitting a, a genetic disorder. So for instance, both mum and dad might be a carrier of cystic fibrosis which means that their babies would have a one in four chance of having the disease. So they would be unaffected, they're just carriers, but um, with that sort of chance and cystic fibrosis is a horrible disease. So the idea then is rather than taking potluck, waiting for them to get pregnant, and then either seeing what, what happens to the baby when it comes out or doing a prenatal diagnosis, which requires making a, taking a sample from the baby, then you do it differently. You, um, you take the, the couple into an IVF clinic, even though they're not infertile, you produce yeah. a number of embryos, which is what all IVF cycles do, and then you ask which one of these have cystic fibrosis. 
and then you just don't implant the um, the ones that um, that have. Right. So conceptually, it's very simple. Now, obviously, in order to do it, it's very complex. Yeah. Um, so what it involves is letting the cell grow to about um, day five of development, taking a few cells off that embryo. So you think, my goodness, you're, you're ripping cells off a baby? <clears throat> goodness <laughs> me. Well, um, what the, the way that it's done is by taking cells that you know are destined to become the placenta. Um, so, and, and, and avoiding the cells that are going to become the baby. Um, yeah. so you make the, the, um, the diagnosis that way. Now I give you one example of, um, cystic fibrosis, which is a disorder that's inherited by a single gene. Mm -hmm. Um, there are also, uh, disorders that are associated with chromosomes. So for instance, down syndrome. Now chromosome disorders can lead to things like down syndrome. They can lead to pregnancy loss or they can lead to IVF failure completely. Yeah. So what we do with a cytogenetic diagnosis is we ask, are there any extra or missing chromosomes um, in the embryo? Um, and the very first cytogenetic one was looking at the chromosomes that I've mentioned to you a moment ago, um, the X and the Y. Yeah. The reason that we do that was there are some diseases that only affect boys. So Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a good example of that. And again, these are horrible muscle wasting diseases. Um, the young men that, that have this, they, they learn to walk, but they'll never learn to run. They're in a wheelchair by the time that they're 10 and they're dead by the time that they're 20. And this is you know, just how horrible these diseases are. So our rationale at the time was to be able to help uh, patients who are at risk of transmitting these diseases to say, right, we will only implant embryos that we know have two X chromosomes. So they're female and we know that they don't have the disease as a result. So there's very early cytogenetic diagnosis were doing exactly that. Uh, the couples came in, I think there were about 20 or 30 cycles that we did in that initial series. We um, uh, took some cells from the embryo with the, the cells that were removed, we splatted them down onto a glass slide. We covered them with fluorescent probes, the X and Y chromosome, two X's, Yes, the remainder of that embryo that we've kept in culture, that can go into mum. The ones with uh, X and Y, then no, that one will be um, discarded. So just to clarify, this isn't necessarily in uh, patients who are having IVF for um, fertility issues. It's uh, taking IVF as a process and using it for kind of a, a different reason for yeah, yeah, it's exactly the case that we um, uh, that we look at single gene disorders. It is yeah. um, interestingly for chromosomal disorders, then it's the, the the waters are a little bit more muddy because yeah. chromosome disorders are one of the main reasons why IVF doesn't work. Right. So, for instance, the the biggest correlate of a chromosome disorder is maternal age. So above the age of 35, um, mums are at risk of um, having a chromosomally abnormal embryo. So it is an effective treatment for a type of infertility caused, if you like, by advanced maternal age. Yeah. So um, you're right in one sense, and the examples that I gave you of Duchenne muscular dystrophy and cystic fibrosis, then yes, absolutely, they're, they're not infertile. Um, but in the cases of um, advanced maternal age, or recurrent um, IVF failure, or yeah. um, recurrent pregnancy loss, all of the yeah. things that can be caused by chromosomes, then it is. Okay, that's really interesting. So in looking at these chromosomal abnormalities, carry mapping oh, no. is involved in that? 
Yes, so carrier mapping is something that was an invention of my friend and colleague, Alan Handyside, who's largely credited with being the, the father of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And um, he and I worked on carrier mapping. Yeah. And essentially what it is, is I described to you a moment ago that we can do diagnosis for single gene disorders, or yeah. we can do diagnosis for chromosome disorders. Yeah. Carrier mapping is a single test that will detect any single gene disorder or any chromosome disorder in one test. So rather than the, um, the patients coming in and then you having to spend several months tailoring the test to them, mm -hmm. to their specific mutation or looking at chromosome disorders, they just come in, you get a blood sample from mum, dad, an affected individual, and then you do the same test on all the embryos. Hey, presto, carry mapping gives you an answer every time without that initial workup. Wow, so that's a really useful technique. Mm -hmm. I'm quite interested in like how exactly does that test work? Yeah, well, no, absolutely. No, it's um, uh, so essentially we are all the the product of our grandparental chromosomes. So, picture chromosome number one, for instance, from paternal grandfather in blue, from maternal grandmother in red, from uh, maternal grandfather in yellow and um, from uh, maternal grandmother in green. Okay, so uh, blue, red, yellow, green. Okay. Um, if you look at your chromosomes, then um, your chromosome number one, then it wouldn't be a sort of a blend of, of red and blue, uh, a sort of purpley color. It'd be a big block of blue and then a big block of red and a big block of blue and a big block of red again. What carrier mapping does is it traces those blocks of blue, red, yellow, and green. And because we have a reference, because we have someone who we know is affected, um, we then compare it to that and say, right, okay, is the embryo carrying the same disease gene on this block of red or blue or yellow or green um, that, the, um, that the, the known individual with the disease is carrying? So it's a comparative method, uh, if you like. Now, the fact that we're already looking at this blocks of blue, red, um, uh, yellow, and green, is suddenly we do get purple, um, red, blue, red, blue, red, blue, all the way down. We know then it's because we've got an extra chromosome. Um, so our normal situation is we're just looking in blocks, but suddenly if we've got two chromosomes there, it goes all purple on us. So it tells the chromosomes and whether the chromosome carrying disease gene is there at the same time. I know it sounds very simple when you say it, but I can imagine it's a very, obviously a very complex um, method, but it's really interesting and it's amazing like how useful this one test can be to so many different people for a variety of different reasons. Yeah, and I mean, the, the nice thing as well is that, you know, you can, you can trace it right back to the um, uh, to the initial studies you've ever done on genetics. Uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan and, he, and his fruit flies, for instance, yes. and um, a Nobel Prize back in the 1930s, I think it was, and the idea that genes are uh, carried on chromosomes, and it's based on exactly that. Um, so uh, all the principles that he laid down in the 1930s, we're just visualizing it, but using modern um, molecular biology techniques. So in your lab at the University of Kent, you mainly look at uh, cattle and pig embryos. 
Yes, um, we do indeed. So um, uh, my my research sort of breaks down into three different areas. One is the human side, which we've um, discussed already. Now there was a time when we used to receive human samples um, into the uh, into the labs and, and process them in that way. Yeah. These days, because they're all done with um, uh, with with diagnostic labs, we've switched our attention basically to data analysis because um, these labs can generate far more data than we ever will um, just by, by doing diagnosis for people. Then, um, so I have a lot of students who basically just number crunch and ask questions in that um, direction. Um, the second area, however, is that we've been in a, in a very fortunate position to get some funding to start replicating some of the things that we were doing back in the 1990s in humans um, uh, to be doing them in pigs and cattle as well. So uh, we now um, have a, a working IVF pig lab, um, literally just opposite from where I'm sitting right now. Um, uh, so the challenge in pig IVF is just to get it to work at all. Um, yeah. If uh, humans had the physiology of pigs, then IVF would have never have happened. Um, <laughs> okay. Much, much harder. It's much easier in cattle and actually um, cattle, uh, after humans are the species on which IVF is done the most, so it's done the second most. Yeah. So we know it works, we can get it to work and that's fine, but um, we've done carrier mapping on our cattle embryos, we've had live births, but we've done it for a very different reason. Yeah. And that is to, um, when they use the same technology on the embryos, they, um, and these are sort of they being cattle companies, they look to see um, this embryo is it going to be um, uh, a, a good milk yield? Is it a, meal, a good milk yielding cow, for instance? Yeah. Is it going to um, have a better disease resistance? And if you do that in the embryo, you don't have to then wait around for it to be born and then test it genetically. You can just test the embryo in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, the reason we added carrier mapping to it was to look for the, the chromosome disorders again. So again, in this case, not because um, they might lead to a cow with Down syndrome, but um, if you can select those embryos that just won't lead to calves because they've got a chromosome disorder, then you're helping the company to improve their um, success rates of when they put a, an embryo into a cow, the chances of that working. Sure. So in a similar way to in humans, you're really, the aim is for a, a successful, healthy pregnancy and live birth at the end of it the same in cattle but obviously for much different reasons not so that the happy cattle families can live happily ever after but obviously for food production yes yeah the the um the motivations are different but the science is, is more or less the same yeah i had two questions that kind of sprung to mind just while you were talking the first one was you mentioned that ivf is a lot harder in pigs why is that um, so there are a number of reasons. One is for reasons we don't completely understand, but we can certainly observe the um, the embryo in pig has got um, an awful lot more lipid in it. So if you look it down a, a phase contrast microscope, it's absolutely black. Um, okay. And we think that is something to do with the, the success rate. It makes it very difficult to freeze. Um, fat droplets um, form ice crystals very easily, and ice crystals really mess up your, uh, your embryo. And then the third reason is the reproductive tract of a pig is um, really quite long. It's about two meters long. 
and it's corkscrew shaped. So if you're trying to implant the embryo, you've got to have a catheter um, that goes all the way in there. It's flexible enough to, um, to be that corkscrew shape as it's inserted, and it's two meters long. Whereas oh if gosh. you think about it's only um, about a foot long in, in a cow. Yeah, interesting. I never knew that. That's really <laughs> interesting. Um, the other question was, how did this come about? Like what made you think, okay, let's do this in pig and cow? I mean, I understand the benefits, but what was sort of your motivations for wanting to perhaps be the person to look into this? Absolutely. So um, our third area of research, which I haven't covered uh, thus far, is to do with the, the cytogenetics of non-human animals. So we do a number of um, uh, that for a number of reasons. One is that if you, when you sequence a genome, you um, from a species that you don't know much about, you essentially just get a bag of bits. And one of the things that my lab does is it, um, uh, it organizes that genome so that it do does it by, by chromosome. So one of the things that I sometimes say to my students is when you look at an organization of chromosomes, the so-called karyotype with chromosome one in the top left-hand corner uh, and the, the smallest chromosome in the bottom right-hand corner, what you're seeing essentially is a map of the genome. Yeah. Um, and the point is that, so I've mentioned the cystic fibrosis gene in humans, that always, always sits on the middle of chromosome seven uh, in every cell of every human. The, the, the gene that when mutated causes Duchenne muscular dystrophy always, always sits on the, the top half of um, the X chromosome. So yeah. every gene has its order. So when we come to sequence a genome, um, getting all the genes and their sequence is part of that is very important, but we also want to know uh, the organization. So we were already working on um, uh, different animals, including pigs and cattle and their related species. So uh, related to cattle is buffalo, for instance, related to pigs is peccaries and things like that. So one of the things that we do is um, uh, find out the organization of the genome, the order of the genes. Now, the, the reason that the IVF thing came about was um, we were having a conversation with uh, one of the companies that we worked with um, on genome organization in pigs, and in particular, to try and find genes that were associated with fatness. And we finished our discussion and we just started shooting the breeze a little bit. And we started saying, well, what else do you do? And I started describing the work that we previously done in humans and PGD. And he said to me, um, so this is my friend and colleague, um, Grant Walling of JSR Genetics. He said to me, do you know what? If you could do that in pigs, um, and if you could find out the embryos that were purely female, you would save me millions. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, um, an awful lot of our business is um, getting genetics, and by genetics, he means pigs, um, out into the world. Um, so um, he, for instance, was dealing with an order of a thousand piglets to China. And the reason we do that is the, the quality of the genetics of um, British pigs was um, something that they wanted to stock a farm out there. Right. And so it was a stud farm. So then they, you know, that, those thousand pigs would become millions of, of bacon pigs. So, um, uh, so their, their genetics is particularly good that they, rather than developing their own lines in China, buying a line from, um, but, Imagine the logistics of putting a thousand 
piglets on a plane to China. Okay. Not so very easily done. <laughs> two jumbo jets. Um, first of all, um, you um, you have all the you know you need the animal welfare needs to be absolutely spot on. Um, one of the pigs might get an infection and then infect the rest of the um, uh, the animals. So you have to start again. Um, it, they need proper you know home office licenses. You have the issue of um, uh, the, the disease, like I mentioned, particularly bad if they all look fine, they don't have disease when they leave. But how many times have you got on a plane and arrived with a cold? Yeah. Always. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. So, you know, if that happens and then the customer says, well, these pigs are ill, I'm sorry, um, we don't want them, um, then, you know, you're, you're, you're in trouble there. Um, there's an environmental component to the, um, you know, putting pigs on a, a jumbo jet. And although, uh, hand on heart, I can tell you, I've seen them, these pigs travel business class, you know, when did you last have the opportunity to lay down <laughs> on a plane? Um, if you get animal, um, you know, protesters at your door, um, yeah. you've got to try and placate or, you know, get around them in some way. Yeah. So, you know, um, this was a, a big headache. So the idea was, well, if we could just um, get um, a, a pot of female embryos and ship those over to China and implant them at the other end, then the biosecurity goes away. The um, you know, it, it's it's a it's a seat on a plane, not two whole planes. You know, yeah. um, it's um, uh, uh, it, it's. Um, all sorts of issues like, well, I don't think your, um, your your animal rights people are going to be quite so bothered if you've got um, just just a pot of, of embryos there. So um, that was one reason, transportation, uh, biosecurity. Another reason was if you're introducing new genetics into your breeding herd, um, you're, you can do it a lot more quickly um, with embryos than just, just breeding. And you can also do it with a greater intensity. So you can just select the embryos that you want to um transfer rather than waiting for piglets to be born they have to have a certain size barn or whatever else so suddenly this technology that we'd been developing for humans and to help people suddenly we were thinking oh hang on a minute we can use it to feed the world as well yeah. um you know what 90 percent of the of the the population eat meat and um i think um 40 of all meat in the in the world is is pig based so sausages oh, wow. bacon pork um and so on. So, you know, it really is a sort of way of adapting this technique, making it more environmentally friendly and more animal welfare friendly as well. Can I just ask a really like, this is probably a really stupid question. Cause I know these aren't like, so these obviously aren't genetically modified pigs, right? Yeah. But what I know, obviously there's gonna be some people who are thinking sort of along those lines. And obviously they're gonna be thinking a lot about the ethical, um, considerations which need to be given to this what would you say is the difference between what you're doing and um I guess genetically modifying animals I know that might come across in the wrong way but I can just imagine that it's something that some people are thinking and I just think it's a nice thing to sort of discuss yeah yeah no genetic modification is an interesting one and you're absolutely right so if you looked at um a pig a hundred years ago and a pig now they'd be irrecognizable in comparison. So genetic modification in one sense has always happened through selective breeding. Yeah. Um, um, so, you know, we have changed the genes over time for breeding. You know, the, the animals are far less wasteful. They produce far more meat per animal. 
um, uh, you know, and disease resistance, but that's bred into them. When people talk about genetic modification, the context I think you meant was things like physically taking an embryo and, and, and using a technique like CRISPR to, to change it. Yeah. So um, in this case, then yes, absolutely, um, there are serious concerns. Um, the major one is safety. Um, and uh, what we need to be very, very careful of uh, there is that if genetic modification ever got out into the, um, the world and got practiced in farming, that um, the, the number one issue is that um, yeah, the, the, um, it's safe to be out there, uh, particularly from an animal welfare point of view. You don't want to manipulate a gene that will uh, give the animal a greater disease resistance, but then cause it some other problem uh, further down the line. Um, so then the second thing is a sort of more fuzzy, if you like, ethical question of should we do it at all? Um, and I think it's important to keep those two things separate yeah. because um, if you ask someone who is fundamentally against genetic modification of all types, they will come out first and foremost and hit you with a safety argument. Mm -hmm. And then if you come back and say, well, if it could be proven beyond all reasonable doubt by all the means available to science that it was, it was safe, are you okay with it then? And it's a very interesting question to come back to them because some of them will say, well, do you know what? No, I'm not, but, but fair cop, you've got me. Yeah. Um, some will say, well, actually, yes, I am. And I'm, you know, um, uh, I'm, you know, uh, I'm, I'm arguing, uh, I'm arguing it purely on safety. Um, but the, where I have a problem is people then have the mixed messages who argue vehemently on the, uh, vehemently, sorry, on, on the issue of safety but when you throw that question to them, the, the real, the, the real um, reason is that they just don't like the idea yeah. at all, but it doesn't fit their worldview. Yeah. When we get onto worldviews, then um, you know, that's when we get into the, the realms of philosophy and ethics and so on. And then we have a serious debate about, well, um, in a, a philosophical or an ethical question, there are no rights and wrongs. There are only yeah. balances and how it sort of fits our worldview and society as well. So yes, in an ideal world, um, we perhaps wouldn't go down the line of, um, uh, of genetically modifying uh, foods that we would ultimately eat. However, if the, um, the consequences are people go hungry, um, yep. then what is the lesser of those two evils? Yep. Um, it's one of those things that genetic modification plants obviously is an awful lot more easy to do in uh, mammals uh, sorry in, in animals in general not just mammals um, and has been around an awful lot so um, for instance people used to irradiate plants in order to just induce a load of mutations and then see what comes out so um, uh, genetic modification in that context is um, you know a far more um, a sharp tool than just blasting it with radiation but radi radiation has been around for you know donkey's years so when it gets to plants you know um yes perhaps you don't want to breed a pesticide resistant plant because all that means is they'll they'll use more pesticides and they will accumulate in the in the, yeah. the, the um um uh, yeah, in the food that you eat but if you want to re re um, breed a pest resistant plant um, then isn't that better than 
using loads of pesticides to get rid of them. Yeah. So these are the philosophical questions that we need to um, uh, to address. And there are no easy answers and yeah. not everyone will agree. No, completely. So kind of along those ethical lines, but taking a, another bit of a U-turn back to uh, back to humans, that leads quite nicely on to kind of, obviously, there is a need to improve IVF. Um, I think anyone that knows anybody that has gone through the process or anyone that has gone through the process themselves, um, which is probably the vast majority of people, knows someone that's been through this process and therefore knows that there is, there is a need to improve uh, IVF. Is there an argument to say that uh, the techniques you were talking about with the carrier mapping and the uh, only selecting healthy embryos, especially where they're sex-linked diseases, so only selecting a particular um, sex, only selecting for um, a female embryo, at what point does that kind of feed into this whole concept of designer babies? And what what kind of are the ethics surrounding that sort of thing, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, you get into some wonderfully fundamental questions when you talk <laughs> talking about um, uh, pre-implantation genetic uh, testing. So, you know, it gets you down to when does life begin? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, you are, as we've discussed, taking a, um, a an embryo that's that's five days old and, and pulling yeah. some cells off it. Now, you wouldn't do that to a five-year-old child. Um, no. you, know, you wouldn't pull it off. You would hope. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, um, <laughs> you have to be pretty sick to to be able to to do that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we had the Human Fertilization Embryology Bill, which I guess was around 1990, something like that. So at what point does an embryo, an IVF embryo, have rights was, was the fundamental question there. Mm -hmm. And people were not going to agree on this. But the compromise came back as 14 days okay. um, uh, because, um, well, if you if you say you never work on human embryos at all ever there is no IVF period yeah so you say well, okay fine um uh that we will do but what about these people who will you know you you are then taking the if, you, if you're the decision maker that says no IVF you're saying to all these people um who would have children through IVF but not in any other way you can't have children mm -hmm. you 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 become the the godlike creature if you like yeah um, in, in doing that. So um, then you get onto the question of when you make a diagnosis. So you mentioned sex, for instance. Now, yeah. um, that is always an interesting one. Um, and it was very strange because it was the first one that, that we, we did because it was the simplest. Yeah. Because, of course, you can do it purely for the, for the purpose of, um, uh, of diagnosing genetic disease, which is exactly our motivation and why we did it. Um, it is the case, and there are some states in America that do legalize this, that you can do it for, for choice reasons. Right. So, um, you know, I've got five boys, I want a girl, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, now, at the moment, that is illegal in the UK. You've got to, um, you've got to uh, demonstrate that it is for disease-related reason before you, you do sexing. Um, but you sort of think, well, will the world stop turning? if we were able to do this. And the evidence suggests that actually the vast majority of people are going to have um, babies in the normal way. It is a very, very involved process, not to mention very expensive, to go around um, making sure that you um, just have a boy. Now, needless to say, some people would do it. 
and whether that still makes it ethically right, we don't know. But if we can just quell the argument that it's going to, um, at the moment, with what, what we can do, significantly change the sex ratio of the population, there's no evidence for that. Okay. Um, should people do it anyway if they can? Well, then you start getting out of the realms of science and into the realms of social science. Yeah. So the reason why we have debates and ethics committees and law, um, university law departments and social policy departments and philosophy departments is that so that we can rationalize and get these arguments out into the, um, uh, into the world. Now, some people say, well, do you know what? Really, you should be able to, to choose the sex of your child. And that's one extreme. Um, some people say on the other extreme, no working on embryos ever. Okay. Yeah. And the majority is people in the worst case find some common ground. So the common ground in the UK at the moment is that you can only do any sort of pre-implantation genetic testing if you can justify it is for a medical reason. So if you can say, right, we are going to test for this disease um, because um, it is uh, something um, that will lead you know, to uh, that person being severely affected um, with it, then um, then it's allowed. And you think, okay, fine, that's simple then, isn't it? But actually it's not simple. No, so it goes down to then um, things like, well, what about a disease um, that will only affect the person when they receive, when they get to 40 years of age? Yeah. Okay. So by then the likelihood is that we will have a treatment for that disease. So should we right. now be um, diagnosing now for something that probably will never happen? Yeah. Um, there are three of us in this conversation, right? One of us will probably get cancer. Yeah. Statistically, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Sometime in our lives, increasingly so as we as we live live yeah. longer. Um, that's a given. What about this disease gene that doubles that chance? Yeah. So it's not saying that um, uh, you will get cancer. You've got a pretty high risk anyway of getting it. But um, instead of a one in three, you've got a two in three chance as a result of having this gene. Do you go there? What about diseases that are caused like diabetes, for instance, by several genes? So you get a risk factor then. Um, then you start getting into these, um, uh, these ethical debates of would you, should you? And things change, you know. Um, when um, Louise Brown, first IVF baby was born, um, then there were people that absolutely up in arms. You know, you yeah. are meddling. Is this a, you know, is this going to come out as a plastic baby? You know, all really controversial, wasn't it? Yeah. So attitudes do change as well. Um, yeah. So you know, I don't pretend that I'm going to come to you with a load of answers, but I am <laughs> sort of putting out what some of the questions are. Um, yeah. And this is the sort of thing that you know, um, uh, my lab works obviously on pre-implantation genetic testing. There's a, a, um, a group in the law school that also works on pre-implantation genetic testing, mm -hmm. but from you know, the legal and ethical and social point of view. There's so many things that come, come into it, isn't there? And mm. just like, I'd like to get both of your opinions on this actually, because obviously Ellie, you study male infertility as well. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I can imagine there's some people and me personally as well, I'm thinking, Obviously, you're talking about let's just go back to using IVF to sort of increase the chances um, or success rate of um, or just increase the chances of someone who otherwise couldn't have a child being able to have a child. Mm. 
do you not think that perhaps we could be campaigning or trying to direct research more into fixing the problem rather than just I don't want to say masking it with IVF, but using, do you know what I mean? Should we not perhaps be directing more funding and more campaigning towards research to figure out why these people can't have children? And is there a way that we can actually fix that? I yeah, think, absolutely. Go ahead, Ellie, you go no, first. No, I was just going to weigh in and say that IVF tends to be kind of a, almost a one size fits all kind of solution, doesn't it? It's it's not specifically directed at any specific uh cause of infertility but there is also the fact that there we don't really know the causes of infertility that well yet um a lot of a lot of infertile couples present as unexplained infertility yeah so you're absolutely right um um you know ivf in in some ways became a little bit too easy for people um you know although you know it, it, it i'm not trivializing it, it is still expensive whatever and you know ultimately the problem is you um, have problems having a baby and the solution that IVF provides is you end up with a baby. So you can see why it's become so, uh, so popular, but you're absolutely right. And particularly in the world of male infertility, um, it in some ways has impeded the, um, the research into the causes of it. So um, we're now discovering, for instance, that um, uh, you know the the DNA damage in in sperm is a huge cause of infertility, but actually um, men can um, mitigate that by simple lifestyle changes. I mean, number yeah. one is if you smoke, just stop. Um, <laughs> but you know, um, uh, many of the things that we that we've already known about, you know, um, tight trousers, for instance, good diet. Uh, yeah. things like that um lots of antioxidants in your, in your diet just try and make it increase your chances so they're um so they're, they're better in that sense before going for for ivf um ivf you know for things like um uh, tubal blockage in in mum perfect you know it works yeah. very very well but you're absolutely right and this is something that's deba debated quite a lot um it, it has become a bit of a catch-all when sometimes we might be able to um, address the problem a little bit more fundamentally. Um, so, you know, nothing in life is perfect. We do a lot of work into, um, uh, into infertility in general, not just into getting IVF to, to work uh, better. Um, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a process. You, you're competing with um, uh, all of the different areas of medicine, so infectious disease medicine, in cancer medicine, um, not to mention all the fundamental research. You know, everyone's competing for for money to work on their um, their, their favorite topic, um, and everyone's trying to publish. So you know, it is an imperfect system. There's no question. Yeah, come on, Ellie and Ben, I move on. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, we need to, don't we? <laughs> so, um, kind of moving on to a little bit of uh, science communication. So you are obviously a bit of a, a bit of a leading expert in this area. And IVF is is a huge, a huge area, like one in 50 babies are estimated to be born by um, assisted reproductive techniques. So that's a big portion of the population that are affected. And if you're not directly affected, the chances are, you know, someone that is. So being a world leader in this field, you have to be really good at um, kind of communicating to the general public. So 
what sort of methods do you use for your science communication? Um, well, wh whatever anyone will let me do, I think is is the answer. So <laughs> thank you for the opportunity, I guess this is the first thing. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, I, I think that all scientists should do a little bit of teaching because, um, you know, it, it's one of those things that it allows you to stop and think and put yourselves in the um, uh, in the the shoes of the your audience, whatever the audience may be, and to be able to explain it. So some of the things I always um, encourage my um, students to do is to sit in a pub or a cafe and explain to your mum what you do, um, yeah. on the assumption that your mum's not a, a similar specialist to um, who you, you are, or, <laughs> or, your your uncle or, or whatever. Um, it is important because it's getting increasingly complex, of course. So the ability to be able to put that across um, from the point of view of it being exciting and something that needs to be out in the world that people uh, know about from the point of view that it might benefit them. So it might be um, a treatment uh, that they uh, that they end up um, uh, having sometime in the future or they know someone that they, they, they can have so that they can be um, uh, educated and not come out with, um, uh, you know, irrational arguments. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so I, I'm more than happy to debate someone on um, any of these issues, unless they'll come out with something that is completely factually incorrect. Yeah. And then, and I don't mind them coming out with something factually incorrect, as long as then they will accept the evidence. Um, yeah, sure. uh, so the ability to be able to say, look, you know, this is the balance of the evidence and we don't know everything. Um, but if you can do that, it promotes discourse. Um, it, pr it promotes, um, you know, um, seeing one another's point of view. The sorts of places you can do it, public talks, um, uh, you know, get yourself out um, doing a public talk and it'll, it will make you rethink your science in a completely different way. Um, but also, you know, things like IVF, um, we know far more about how a sperm meets an egg through observing it um, through IVF. You know, um, we knew nothing. I mean, no way could we get a microscope down inside someone's fallopian tube and watch, um, uh, watch fertilization uh, happen beforehand until we took the process out, until we sort of got an egg and got, uh, got sperm. Um, you know, be able to use microscopes to be able to see them in a, um, in, in, a, uh, in a reasonable manner. So, you know, you can, when I start talking about designer babies, and I can show a lovely video of fertilization happening. And, you know, I can say to everyone, this is how you started life, one cell, two, four, eight, differentiation and so on. Um, so, you know, the, the ability to be able to do that and not only say, this is what I do and this is why I do it, um, but also the ability to, um, to be able to say, um, and this is a, a fundamental process that we all, that's happened to all of us. Um, yeah. So it, it's just, there's, there's a real joy to be able to, to do it. So I, any opportunity to, to uh, get on the TV, to speak to you guys, to give a public talk, I think it's, it's hugely important. And it, it, we owe it to the next generation because yeah. um, I really, really want to see um, more people in science. And I'm gonna bang one of my drums here. Thank you, both of you. More women in science as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. That's something we're quite passionate about, isn't it, Liv? <laughs>
yeah absolutely and we're obviously I mean yeah we're really into science communication I think that was I think you summed it up really really nicely um you mentioned um that you um like teaching as a method of science communication and encourage your students um to sort of get into and do a little bit more teaching. I know last week when we spoke, you mentioned um, you were in the process of setting up a, a virtual campus in, in Dubai. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Well, I've learned in the last week, I can't call it a virtual campus, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so yeah, ca campus has a, has a certain um, definition apparently about the university, but yes, absolutely. So one of the things that we've been very, very keen on, and um, it's a very exciting new project that we've got on board is that for nearly 10 years now, I've been running a master's course in reproductive medicine, which is you know quite a lot of um, uh, uh, in the world of, of IVF as well. Yeah. And one of those modules was a, um, a hands-on one week, this is what happens in an IVF lab. Um, now, uh, one thing that we can't do, of course, for ethical reasons is, is do that with human embryos. But yeah. um, uh, we were in a wonderfully unique position that we work on, uh, on human embryos. I've done it for, for, for many, many years, just on data these days. But nonetheless, as you asked me, right at the, the top of this interview we also have a pig and cattle uh, lab as well so we could use our pig and cattle embryos as a proxy for the human ones um uh, there are far less ethical issues associated with manipulating cattle embryos and give some someone like you know you know you get these gift experiences drive around silverstone yeah. that sort of thing so yeah. i'm not pretending that after one week they know um they can qualified to work in a um, in an IVF lab but they yeah. have at least got that taster we've we've communicated that science in a way that they can do it hands-on they appreciate that that moving a human embryo from one dish to the other is really really hard and yeah. some people um, can do it much better than, than than others they appreciate just what a real sperm cell actually looks like um, and how difficult it is to, to grab one and, and and inject it into into an egg um, and so armed with that, um, I, I go out to Dubai once or twice a year and have done since about 2007. I started bumping into people that were working in the same area. And the idea really was um, basically to, to bring that, um, uh, that learning experience that we already have in Kent, and we run it not only for our master's students, but as a summer school as well, um, but to bring it out into the Middle East as well, where reproductive issues are, are absolutely uh, huge. Yeah. So um, we, um, uh, we, we found a premises to, to run it in. We, um, we got our courses all ready. And what happened? <laughs> hey, so yeah. um, we have adapted our courses for now that the majority of the, the learning bit, the, the lectures bit, if you like, is online. The students are taking that. Um, we now have just identified another new premise premises because the ones that we'd identified, you know, they had to let the lease go because. Um, oh. um, but we now we the both the UAE and the UK are doing so well with vaccinations. We've identified a new premises. Uh, it's near the beach, um, and with luck, uh, we will be able to bring in our students who've done the online bit to go and do the hands-on bit as well. So the the aim is to have a combination of practical and online learning um with um i don't know a center mini campus i can't call it that but um it's actually a, a floor in a shopping center would you believe uh, 
but um, uh, yeah, to, to bring that learning experience to, to the Middle East and then uh, have another hub out there as well. So uh, it's very exciting and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Prime example of science outreach, isn't it? And taking yeah. it, yeah. Yeah. Taking and it international. Again, the same applies. You know, a lot of students will want to, to do it. Not all of them will go on to, um, to go and be IVF technicians, but yeah. you know, a, a much smaller proportion will. But nonetheless, they at least have had that, that learning experience. Uh, one of the things we found as well, which is very interesting, is that um, although it's a course that's set at master's level, um, an awful lot of people can do it. So, um, you, you know, the, the qualification for our master's degree, the whole degree is um, uh, uh, a second class degree, at least in biosciences. But this particular module, we've had 16 year olds doing it. We've had people that work for the police um, doing it um, just to, you know, so it, this particular module, you don't necessarily need, you need to know some background. You need to be reasonably intelligent. You need to want to learn yeah. about it. but. Um, it came as a bit of a surprise that um, um, one of my colleagues whose daughter was 16 at the time and she's finished a PhD in Oxford now said, can, can, um, uh, can his daughter come uh, on, on the course? And she did the best of the lot at 16 oh, years wow. old. She, wow. she um, outperformed all my master's students. Um, <laughs> I just, bet they were gutted. <laughs> I know, I know, absolutely, yeah. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, so um, we, we, it came as a surprise, that one, um, that, you know, it, the, the broad applicability of being able to do this and, um, um, and just how much fun they have doing it as well. I think that's uh, it, isn't it? It's yeah. just like these sort of little things that you do like throughout you know like your career as an early research researcher like for me especially during a phd you sort of go down like you go for a roller coaster of loving science hating science loving science hating science and i can imagine it's the same at masters and even you know undergraduate level definitely for me anyway so i think it's these these little things that are really cool because they like reignite your your love for science even if it's not particularly in your field you sort of just get like a new found appreciation for these sort of techniques and these these things that we have available in science so i think it's really cool Good, definitely <laughs> definitely another thing another area that i wanted to talk to you a little bit about you did a little kind of what half an hour documentary with kmtv that we and Liv watched um that we really enjoyed mm -hmm. so can you can you sort of talk to us a little bit about why well obviously we know your rationale behind doing these outreach things is just because you're very passionate about science communications but what uh, I'm interested to know your views on um, using kind of documentaries as as a method of outreach um, for the general public. Like, what what benefit do you think they bring? Yeah, so it's interesting actually because we we've looked into this and and um, an awful lot of people are starting to say, well, you know, your your traditional documentary is a little bit outdated now. And yeah. actually, the evidence is is the opposite. For something like this, the the old fashioned, you know, almost David Attenborough type uh, yeah. format, is the thing to which most people still like to turn um, for general information, particularly about things um, sciencey, because you know, uh, you can often do it with some very good production values. Um, yeah. You can do it in a way that people recognise. It's um, it's a sort of it's entertaining, semi passive learning. So um, 
there's a, a lot that can be achieved um, from, from that point of view. And you're quite right, we've made actually a couple of documentaries. One was on IVF, so the Making yeah. Babies one. And yeah. the nice thing there was by working with a production company, it allowed us to, to splice in some of our um, explanations of what was working, some nice videos, but also some patient stories um, yeah. as well. And just, just getting their, um, uh, you know, getting their point of view uh, and filming in the in the clinics as well. Um, the second one that we made, uh, we called uh, "Love My Genome," which was a sort of account of what happens when people who are supposed to know this stuff, um, uh, genomics and whatever, either from a scientific or a legal point of view, what happens when they have their genome sequenced and, yeah. and how it's quite a leveler in in comparison, um, and how you discover how little you know when you've you've had that um uh, that experience and then one of the things again that was surprising there was um we discovered sort of some way through the process of making it that um this type of dna sequencing that that um, companies offer um not everybody likes that idea the sort of um service-based um uh, and, and what it provides and so on and um we were somewhat naive in that and we didn't appreciate quite the backlash that we got for making that yeah. so um but nonetheless we we're very proud of it um so we've done two already and that allowed us um really really excitingly to um apply to the british film institute with yeah. kmtv and i need to give a, a big shout out to my friend and colleague jill hurst here who who um uh um who, who basically fronted all of this and she's doing a PhD with me in science communication right now. Um, she fronted this grant through which we um, uh, we then um, uh, we were lucky enough to get. And the idea is we will make six documentaries um, based uh, or aimed at um, uh, sixteen so sixteen to eighteen year olds. It's interestingly yeah. the age of my kids. All about okay. genomics. So okay. we've got one on the basics. We've got one on designer babies. Yep. We've got one on agriculture, uh, we've got one on disease in general, uh, we've got one on conservation, and then we've got one on behavioural traits, um, like, you know, is there um, uh, any predetermination to homosexuality or, or certain yep. behavioural traits and things like that. So yep. six different um, areas um, involving students debating these issues as well, um, and filming starts on Monday. Oh, how exciting! That's absolutely amazing. I bet you're so excited. Yes, very much so. It's absolutely amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. That's really exciting. Um, just to sort of top that off and um, big you up a little bit more. Um, there's also obviously um, a book in the pipeline as well. Yes, so um, we uh, we currently published a book last year on pre-implantation genetic testing, mm -hmm. um, and um, so that is out and available from Amazon. Uh -huh. um, uh, <laughs> we'll put the link in the description box. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but no, we we have a germ of an idea right now. We would like to write a book on science communication. Um, we hope to use the same publishers again, CRC Press, um, and we hope to get the um, uh, the experiences of. Um, a number of science uh, communicators and to to get their experiences out uh, in the same way that you know uh, some of the things that we're talking about here why it's important and so on so I need to twist some arms um, <laughs> I need to get um, the, the wonderful Jill Hurst in, involved I may even recruit you guys for a bit of help as well if that's okay. oh we'd love to <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah absolutely but I'm um, yeah really excited for you um it's amazing stuff like this is what me and Ellie mine and Ellie yeah 100% we yeah we are really passionate about science communication as well so it's really nice to um discuss it just to sort of close things and wrap things up we had some uh I guess sort of cliche questions that we wanted (laughs) to ask you and we normally don't ask these sort of questions but we were like why not just ask let's just ask Darren these questions so (laughs) we wrote down two um the first one is we're really interested in what is one thing that you wish you knew before or in the early stages of your career? Oh, so um, what do I know now that I wish I did when I started my PhD? Exactly. Um, oh, goodness me. Uh, what's, that is a good question. Um, I, Put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I, I think... I, to know how many different areas you can go into. Um, and, and I think so sort of my my older self would just sort of reassure my younger self that it's going to be all right. Um, <laughs> and, um, and one of the things that I, I was always criticised for at a very, very early age and still do to many um, uh, in many ways is spreading myself too thin, taking on too many things. Um, and um, to to have the reassurance that actually that would be all right and actually even a benefit in some ways, I think. Um, Interesting. Uh, I, I, my, my older self would tell my younger self that it's going to be all right. And this, this terrible trait that everybody gives you a hard time of taking too many things on, you will find your mojo uh, with it. And I certainly do. Wow, Darren, that is music yeah. to my ears. I have to because <laughs> <laughs> I'm the exact same. And everyone always says to me, well, just stop taking things on. Stop doing this. Don't start a podcast. And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> just let me get on with it. <laughs> what we want to do. Yeah, don't interrupt me. I'm having fun. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, oh, no, I'm, I'm not creating a monster now, have I? <laughs> you have. You have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, last one. I love this one. If you could step into our shoes, Darren, not that you'd want to, but if you could be us and ask yourself one question that we haven't asked you today, what would it have been? What did we miss? Um, so, uh, is is there a question that um, that I think you you missed? Um, do you know what? I don't think there is. Uh, you um, <laughs> we covered most of the, uh, the the bases there. You talked about the sides. Actually, you've not asked me about dinosaurs, have you? There we go. Oh, we haven't. You have to come back. <laughs> yes. We'll have to um, so go I'm, I'm going to give a little bit of. I'm going to give you 30 seconds on what we do with dinosaurs. So I, I mentioned one of the things that we did was starting looking at the the organization of the uh, of the genome. And um, we started doing it in in a number of different animals, uh, including birds. And birds are the, the 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 group of animals that we study most. And one of the things that was just so exciting to be able to do is we found out a certain group of turtles, which are the the nearest relatives to to birds, um, certain aspect of their chromosomes, just a few of them, the soft shell turtles, were incredibly similar to birds. And what that allowed us to do was extrapolate back and say, do you know what? We're pretty sure this is what the chromosomes of a dinosaur, probably all dinosaurs, look like. Um, and we we published it in Nature Communications, didn't have a lot of press interest, didn't have a lot. And then um, I went down to the, um, the, the Natural History Museum to talk to one of our um, 
uh, a real dinosaur expert, and he phoned up Palab Ghosh, the, um, the BBC science correspondent, and said, yeah. oh, you know what, wait till the World Cup's out of the way, but I'll pop down and I'll do an interview. He yeah. popped down, when is it out, Palab, when it's out, oh, give it a couple of weeks, give it a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll find a slow news day. Fine, <laughs> fine, fine. Three weeks later, suddenly the phone is red hot. It, it's off the hook and then I'm suddenly asked, answering questions about why we won't do any Jurassic Park uh, for instance, <laughs> you know are you trying to recreate velociraptors and, and um, T-Rexes <laughs> and so on just because we we've we got some insight into the genomes of dinosaurs yeah. and the really nice thing was you know I had my sciencey talk on this I then adapted it to um, a public-based talk as well so yeah. I now have um, public-based talks on designer babies, on genomics, on be a successful scientist, on disappearing Y chromosomes, and now on dinosaurs as well. So uh, wow. someone can invite me back four times and I've got a different talk, but after that I run out of ideas. <laughs> we've got another three episodes to get through with you then. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Brilliant. Absolutely amazing. Honestly, we've, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you today. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for your time and um, coming on to speak to us. Just one last thing. How um, can people perhaps get in touch with you or follow you on any, um, do you have any social media or? So, uh, yes, the, um, if you Google my name, you'll get my, my website. Um, yeah. I think my uh, Twitter is um, at Darren K. Griffin. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. All one word, um, and I think my Instagram is at Prof Desi, something like that. So. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, that's great. Okay, guys, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming today. Really appreciate no it. Okay, all right. Good to see you, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Genomics Lab. That's got a capital G and a capital L. You can actually also find both of us on Instagram at a genomics PhD and at PhD underscore Ellie. Finally, be sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform and we will see you all in the next episode. Thank you again for listening. Mm -hmm.